podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Now, if you... Um, if I tell you how many verses we're preaching from today, uh, some of you are going to start doing math. Those of you who've been around here know that I can uh, preach on two or three verses in like 45 minutes if I'm giving myself some generosity, you know, like I'm being nice about it. More than time, if I feel the Spirit just get on, I'll go for like two hours and you guys can't stop me. You can't stop this, okay? And so, um, uh, and so on one or two verses, today we're preaching 32, but don't get scared because we are, are going to run through 32 verses. And, uh, and, I, and I tell you, today we're, we're going to um, go an overview of Romans chapter 11. Um, before we do that, I want to just kind of go to Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10 and kind of do an overview of where we have been. And, and when we talk about Romans 8, I'm, I'm going to take that as kind of the, the highlight of all that we were looking at in Romans chapter 1 through 7. And when you get to 8, you start soaring in the, the, the promises of God. It's staggering how many promises there are in Romans chapter 8 that see the fulfillments in Christ, that, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that because of our sin, our rebellion against God, our turning away from Him, we, we looked at all of that through, through Romans chapter 1 through 7, we see we have this strong foundation and this promise is sure and God has saved the people and He's called us His children and there's hope for the future and you look at all of these things that you see in Romans chapter 8 and for us we go, this is amazing. But what Romans 9, 10, and 11 do is they start to address this uh, major issue. And that's, that's because of this. Um, if, if Israel is, is now uh, not just the isolated group of God's chosen people, but that you look at this and God has, has opened up and embraced the whole world and God has sent His Son to establish a new covenant and He's set in motion this global mission to rescue all sinners and He's promised this glorious consummation to the entire universe and now Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom of God and there's God's covenant people are wandering and feeling rejected If all of that is true, if all of God's promises are true, then you can hear Israel just asking this question, well, God has made us a promise. Has He failed that promise? And if if all of these promises depend upon God's word and they depend upon His dependability in the sense that He's faithful, that if he would fail Israel in their promise, what would make us think that he wouldn't fail us in this promise? And so Paul, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, is dealing with this accusation of have God's promises failed? Have they failed Israel? So what we're going to to look at today as we read Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 32 and for some of you this is going to be the most scripture you've ever read in one sitting and then we're going to we're going to dive into this together and read all of Romans chapter 11 verses 1 through 32 I want us to to kind of in this reading understand that there are some theological debates underneath Romans chapter 11 Um, and that is what's the future of Israel 
Because in chapter 9, we see that God has, has chosen a spiritual Israel and he's chosen them by his grace and that spiritual Israel is, 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 is still intact. And then we see in chapter 10 that God, that the Israelites have, have rejected his hands of mercy being reached out to them. And in chapter 11, he's dealing with, is there a future for them? So inside of this, in evangelical Christianity, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, there's a difference of opinion regarding Israel. And one of those things is uh, what, what I'll call the covenant view. The covenant view believes that the church has replaced Israel. And all the promises made by God to Israel now just apply to the church and the church is spiritual Israel so Israel basically has lost its place in all of, of, of salvation history and all of God's plan and purposes and the church has replaced that then there's a view that believes that Israel has been rejected by God because of disobedience and God has preserved a remnant that one day there will be a restoration to God. And what, what I want to make clear when we talk about views of Scripture is this. There's smart people on both sides. So we have to be extremely humble in our approach and we have to walk through this views um, by going, man, uh, yeah, I know there's smart people and big arguments on this side, but I, I believe as we read Romans chapter 11, God, God makes clear His, his plan. What I want to try to do in this is show what's the future of Israel, but I also want us to hear what is God teaching us. Okay, so let's stand together as we read Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 32. And remember, as I'm reading, this is God's word. I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to the knee of ba- to, bowed down their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basics of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever so I ask did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous now if their trespasses means riches for the world 
And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to the Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offers his fruit, first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing roots of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are a member, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. For if God did not spare his natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were to cut, if for if you were cut from what is by nat- natural a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish the ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now been disobedient in order that, you, that by mercy shown to you, they also may know and receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. God, I thank you for your word. Show us the continuity of your story. Show us that you are the God of the old and the God of the new. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Show us your plan of salvation. Show us your mercy and kindness and severity. Show us your plan. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. We only have a few minutes here, so what I want to do is, is ask this question that's asked Ask this question here that is asked at the beginning of chapter 1, and that is this. God rejected, has God rejected his people? And Paul, with exclamation point, says, by no means has he rejected his people. And he proves that he hasn't rejected his people by giving some very clear evidence. And and here is how he does that. First, he starts in verse 1 by sharing personal testimony. If God has rejected his people, the Jewish people, Paul says, he would have had to reject me. 
And he shares part of his testimony. He's an Israelite, descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he starts with, I have received by God's grace being a part of God's people. And so me as a Jew, I am testimony to the fact that God has not abandoned his people. Verses 2 through 6 show this, that there is a remnant and God has always preserved a remnant. He shares the story of Elijah who asked God if he was alone. And God says, no, I've preserved a remnant and to this day I have preserved a remnant. And how he proves that God has not forsaken his people is by this, by saying there's still a remnant who know that they're not saved by their ethnicity or by their race. They're saved by grace. Those people know and they are a part of the kingdom of God. Those Jewish people are a remnant, a display that God God has not forsaken his people. Then he shows the election of God. I know we wrestle with this, but verses 7 through 10 shows us this. The elect have always understood that they were a spiritual people and not an ethnic people. The elect have always understood that. Those who God has chosen understand it. And then what we see take place is in this argument, this proof that God has not rejected Israel and he still has a plan for Israel, God shows what his plan is. And that plan is that in sending his son Jesus and in tearing down all the dividing walls, this was always a part of God's big plan of salvation, this ultimate consummation back to living under the rule and reign of our Lord and Savior. He shows us that part of his way of reaching Israel was to cut them off, to bring the Gentiles in so that the Gentiles could make the Jewish people jealous. It's amazing to me to think of this because God has always elected a people and election was shown throughout scripture not just for privilege, not to say, yeah, I've been chosen by God and you all haven't. Uh. That's not what election is all about. Election is about this. It's a heavy responsibility to know God has shined his light upon me. I need to be a light to the nations. That that light is to be sure. God's chosen me. He's blessed me to bless others. And here's what he's showing us, that Israel was chosen and elected not just as a privileged people, but as a people that were to be a light to all nations. And now God has chosen the nations to be a light to Israel. What I want to do is show you a quick testimony because I think there's no way I could do better than a friend of mine from Gilbert who passed, who's one of the pastors at Gilbert, and he's a part of his name's Neil Pitchell. We'll get back to the argument. He's going to share his testimony on this point. So if we could start that, um, I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. Paul tells us that the reason that the Gentiles were to make the Jews jealous is maybe, just maybe, if they're jealous of what the Gentiles have, that they would turn back to God and receive the grace that he offers independent of the law. That means that we as Christians should be such light. We should have such life, such joy, such love for God and for others that whenever we come in contact with a Jew, they'd say, how come we don't have what they have? How come they have joy in their hearts and love 
despite their circumstances. And we have to admit, the church has a pretty shameful history in making the Jews jealous. But that was Paul's intent. That was Paul telling us that God's intention was for the Gentiles to be such light that when Jews come in contact with them, they would be jealous of what they had. That's what happened to me. I was a Jewish kid growing up north of Boston, forced to go to Hebrew school from fourth grade through seventh grade, five days a week, then bar mitzvah lessons, then I was bar mitzvahed at the age of 13. The day after my bar mitzvah, I vowed to never set foot in a temple again. I felt, I felt so burdened by the law, by the rules and the regulations and, and the commandments and the, and the festivals and everything that was required of me. I said, no, thank you. I don't want it. Leave me out. And I stayed out of it for years until I was a freshman at college at the University of Massachusetts. I was sitting in my dorm room one night, and uh, these two guys walked into my room. Never seen them before, and they were big guys, so I obviously paid attention to them. And they asked me if I believed in God. I said, mm, yeah, uh, I do. They said, do you believe you could have a personal relationship with God? And I said, no. That's not possible. All those rules, all those regulations. In fact, I can't even be in the presence of God without my head covered. I have to wear a yarmulke because God's so holy and I'm so messed up. We can't have a relationship. In fact, I can't even write the word God. I have to write G space D. You can't have a personal relationship with God. I said, we'd like to tell you how you can. And I didn't feel like studying anymore, so I said, okay. Well, right at that moment, my roommate walked in. Uh, from, he was from Connecticut, great guy. Uh, probably considered himself a nominal Christian. He didn't feel like studying either, so uh, he sat down and listened. And the guys pulled out this little orange pamphlet, and they started going through this thing called the Four Spiritual Laws. Went right over my head. I didn't get a thing that they were saying. Didn't make any sense to me. My roommate did. My roommate got saved that night. I didn't know what was happening. It scared me. Um, so I did the only thing that made sense. I moved out. <laughs> I moved in with... Uh, Another friend, uh, halfway through the semester that I was living with him, he got saved. Same guys. So I did the only thing that really made sense. I moved into a fraternity. Uh, and I knew I'd be, be safe there. And, and in fact, I was pretty much. But, but here's what happened. These guys, these two guys that walked into my room, my two ex-roommates and, and their friends, were the kindest most forgiving, most joyful people I'd ever met in my life. I was unreliable. They'd invite me to come to something. I'd say, sure, I'll be there. I wouldn't show. They forgave me. They invited me again. They, they were so different. They, they were so full of life and joy that eventually I said, okay, let me see this New Testament of yours. And I said, okay, start with the, with the book of John. So I, I did, and that created a, a problem for me because it was really good. Um, and these guys continued to be involved in my life. Um, I continued to read 
the New Testament, but I was so troubled, so, so overwhelmed by my family that, that didn't believe that all of the Jews throughout history, how, how can this be true? So I got to a place because I was so impressed with those guys and I was so impressed with what, what was said here. I got to a place that um, I believed I was going to have a big four. See, Jews have a big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I decided I'll have a big four, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. I'll have it both ways. This will be fine. Well, all that did was lead to further frustration. It was, there was something nagging inside of me that, that this wasn't right. This went on for years. Graduated from college, and someone gave me the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And in the book, Lewis says, I want to talk to those of you who believe that Jesus is a great prophet, a great man. I thought, ooh, that's me. And he said, I think you have a problem. You have a problem because Jesus said he is God. And I knew that because I read that. And he said, if anyone says they're God, you only have three choices. He is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, who he says he is. <clears throat> now, I had seen the difference that God had made in the lives of these men. They were like nothing I had ever seen before. There was no way that these men who had committed their lives to Jesus committed their lives to a lunatic or to a liar. And I didn't understand it completely. I didn't know why Jews throughout history didn't believe. But because of the grace of God and because of the lives of these men, I prayed that God would open my eyes to see the truth of who he is. And because of God's grace and because of those men, I'm standing right here in front of you, a Jewish kid from Peabody, Massachusetts, preaching the gospel. No, God hasn't given up on the Jews. Amen. That's good stuff, right? If we could go back to that slide, I, I want you to look at what Neil said. There's such a beauty in that, that God would choose us to do what he did in choosing Israel, and that is to be a light to that nation, that they would look in and be jealous. The other thing would be this. This one is more difficult for us to understand, and that is this thing of kindness and severity of God. He said, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. This is an argument for the proof that God has not fully and completely rejected Israel, and it is the fact that God is kind of saying, part of covenant theology that I think some of us may not know that we believe is the fact that we look at Scripture in two ways. We look at it as Old Testament, New Testament. We look at it as Old Covenant and New Covenant. We look at it this way. Angry God, kind God. In the Old Testament, he was just angry. And we look at it in all honesty and we look at the Old Covenant and we go, wow, that was an angry, unkind God. But Jesus, he's just a sweetie pie. I was in a Bible study this week and we were studying Psalms 139. And there was a part in there that was talking about anger. And the only answer the people could give about this angry God was that's all gone now in the New Testament. 
Romans shows us this and, 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 and reveals to us that in order for us to see the whole picture of salvation and in order for us to know that God is truly love, you cannot pit God's love and God's anger as two separate things that oppose each other. Because so many people say, well, God's loving. He wouldn't do anything angry. Let me, let me give you an example for you to understand how loving truly God is. And in God and in the fullness of who God is, anger and severity is a part of his love. If my daughter came to me and said, Dad, I've been abused by somebody, whether that's sexual or physical abuse. If they came to me and told me that I was abusive and I just said, well, baby, I love you. Just forgive and it's all good. Go ignore it. That's not loving at all. If I don't get angry about abuse towards my daughter, there's something wrong. And if we think that anger is not a part of God's love, we've missed what love is. There is a very severe part to God because in order for him to be truly righteous and loving, he's got to have that severity and he's got to have this in his character. We should want God to be angry because he's the only one who's truly loving. We should want him to be severe. And what he shows us in this is there is a severity of God. And when we get into this gospel and we understand who God is and we go, well, that's angry God and this is loving God, what we can miss and what Romans 11 is warning us against is this. Some of us can focus in on, well, God is just so loving and without knowing it, you too could be cut off because you do not respect who God is. As he's showing the proof that God has not rejected Israel and that there is a future and in that future he says he's using the Gentiles to graft Israel back in and that there will be this move of God's spirit that God has in his plan of salvation to bring Israel back into the fold and there will be this fullness, maybe a revival of, of the people of God if you will. God hasn't rejected them. He has a future for them. But I think what we could miss is that we could look at what we've just read and we could focus in on, well, this is a good history lesson, good thing to take notes on. It has nothing to do with me. But if you look at um, how Paul writes this in verse 13, he says, now I'm speaking to Gentiles. He turns and says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And all of these questions that Israel's asking, you think I'm just fighting with the Israels and all the Gentiles. Oh, yeah, go, Paul. Fight for us. Go, Paul. Fight for us. Yeah, man, this dude's got our back. Now he turns to them and says, I'm talking to you now. Don't just sit on the sidelines and go, yeah, let us in by grace. We're all saved, man. Let us in, man. It's really powerful. God is loving and all this kind of stuff. What he does is he turns to them and says, Make sure, make sure you understand some things. And I, I want you to read a quote that we'll put up on the screen from N.T. Wright. Here's what he says. Paul is issuing a serious warning in this to Gentile Christians that they must not suppose for a moment that they have replaced Jews in God's plan. That the church is now a Gentile-only family, or worse, that God has chosen them 
precisely because they are Gentiles. There's something to us reading about the people of God in the Old Covenant and us looking at it and sitting there with a smug look on our face and going, how could they miss it? I mean, they've always been saved by grace. I mean, they can't be saved by race. It's got to be by grace. They get so proud that they're, that they're Israel. Oh, man, and then they look at the law and they feel like they got to earn their way into favor with God and they just do these things. And what Paul's saying is, you better be careful because you fall in that same trap where instead of looking on the grace of God you start thinking it's something you've done or something outwardly you've accomplished or just because of who you are that God has chosen you and brought you into his kingdom he issues a severe warning to the Gentiles I think it's interesting here that most of the teaching that we read in 11 through uh, 1 through 32, we think, oh, this is all about Israel. But I'm going to tell you this. Paul turns to the Gentiles and spends most of his time warning us of a couple things. And I, need we, I think we need to pay attention to it. One is this. You've been grafted in to be a light. We can get so wrapped up in the privileges of election but let me ask you a question. Is your life lived in such a way that people would get jealous of the favor and grace you've received? I didn't say your life's easy. I didn't say all your things are comfortable and people want your money. I want to know is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of life, in the midst of everything, are we so overwhelmed by the grace that we've received and that we've been brought into the family that the world around us sees this favor and light that God has placed upon us, that they are jealous of what God has done, that God draws them in by jealousy. I love that, that he doesn't just want to go, you're mine if you live up to this. No, he wants to draw his people in by their affections, make them jealous. And he's using us to do that. That begs the question, would people be jealous the God that has chosen us and brought us in. Would we have that same testimony where, where, where Neil says, I looked at their lives and I was jealous of this favor and the grace and the passion they had for God. Second thing is this. I'm going to read these three verses and then we'll end as the band comes and we prepare for communion. But I'm going to read verse 18, 20, 21, and verse 25. And I want you to see this warning Verse 18 says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast in your faith so that you do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Look at how he warns them of a very, a very deceptive thing, and that is this, pride. He calls them, don't be arrogant, don't be proud, don't be wise in your own eyes, be humble. Be humble. There is nothing in the message of the gospel 
that should make us feel elevated above others. There's nothing. There's nothing in ourselves that should elevate us. It, it should be such a beauty to us that we see how God has shined his light upon us and showed us grace instead of severity in which we deserve that that light should shine to the rest and that should come from a place of humility. It doesn't come from pride. Two things Paul warns the Gentiles of. He said, as you look the people of Israel, that God had the same plan of choosing by grace. God was sending them as a light to the nations. God sends his son. He raises up the church. He opens it up to the Gentiles. They were called and brought into the kingdom of God to be a light to the nations. And God's going to restore and bring all things about. If you look at God's plan and the massiveness of his sovereignty inside of that, there should be such a humbling effect and there should be such a love and passion that all would I'm going to pray for us today because here's what I want us to do. I want us to see the continuity of Scripture. I want us to look at God the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that He is the Lord of this plan of salvation in the restoring of all things. When we look at this, we better be very humble, better very aware of the kindness, the severity of God, We should not look and go, oh man, they thought they were by race or they thought they could earn it by the law. We should look into our own hearts and be aware of our tendency to want to try to earn God's favor and grace. We should be very aware of our tendency to try to put faith and trust in other things. Remember, it's by faith. And then we should pray that we would be a light that shines to the Jewish people, to the world around us, not just the Jews, but the whole world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace that you've poured out upon us. Thank you for this message that you still are the Lord over your plan of salvation, that from the very first sin to the choosing of your people, to display your light, to sending of your prophets, to the sending of your son Jesus, to die the death we should have died, to live the life we should have lived, to raise from the grave, to give us new life, to call us as your children into this family, to graft us in to the vine, to bring us to be a part of this kingdom, that we would be overwhelmed by your grace and a light to the nations, that all would see and know that you are the Lord of all and that you would and are taking all things to complete and full redemption under your lordship.